Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. Today's story that we look at marks the fulfillment of David's destiny, right? Um, as we've been going through this series, we started the very first week with the uh, declaration, with the anointing of David that he would be king eventually. And during these, this series, we've kind of seen this winding road that David's taken from, from that, from that uh, anointing to, to being uh, the, the, the counselor, the, the, the comforter for King Saul, to his victory over Goliath, to being pursued by Saul, to being in the wilderness, to moving to the Phil Philistine nation. We've seen this, this walk by David through so many different experiences. And every single experience he had was reflected in a song, in a psalm, that showed that his heart was for God, that his heart was about God, that he had a passion for God above and beyond everything else. From the very beginning, as that lowly shepherd boy in that field who gets called out by the man of God, Samuel, to be anointed, to this moment, the crowning achievement, that, that which he's been looking for for, for years and years that he, is, that he has known that God had for him. When he, was, when he was in the wilderness, when he was in the caves, when he was being pursued by, by Saul, this is where God was leading him. This is where God was taking him. This event marks his triumph. This event marks his ultimate victory. His placement at the top of it all. He is now king. Can you imagine that? Can, can you imagine being king? Think about, think about the head-spinning rare error that that is. Think about what it would do to you. Think about, think about how you would feel about that. All the, all the years that they're trying to kill you, all the years that you're living in, in the wilderness, all the years that your home is a cave, all the battles you fought, all the battles you've overcome, now you are finally king. How do you think that would play? How do you think that would mess with the heart and the mind of an individual? Anybody here ever crowned king or queen of homecoming? Huh? Ever met the guy who was named king of homecoming? You ever seen how they like puff their chest out? And I mean, for years after being in high school, they'll remind people, I was homecoming king. Right? 
The, the, the pride and the arrogance that comes, it's, it's, that, that's manifested in something like that. We see it all the time in our culture and our society. I'm somebody who loves football. I, I'm somebody who watches from the, time I was, from the time I was 10 years of age. I have not missed a, a Packer game to this day. I've lived overseas. I would get up at, I'd get up at, at 5 in the morning when I lived in Italy to watch games on Armed Forces television. Can I tell you the thing that irritates me more than anything else? Anytime I watch it, the stupid arrogance of pro athletes. Who cares? I love football. Who cares? You made a good hit. Congratulations. Stop dancing over the guy's body, right? And, 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 and you see this in the heart of man. You see this heart, the, the heart of the individual, the pride and the arrogance. And we live particularly, I think, in a culture and a society that, that fosters this, that feeds this. The human temptation for pride is real. And that's why the songs written by David on the occasion of his greatest triumph I believe, are incredibly instructive for our hearts and our minds. Think about this. There are at least two psalms that are attributed um, to this season in David's life. And the first one was what we read during worship this morning. And it starts with this. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old, and you are everlasting. Take that in for a second. David has now been named king. His crowning achievement. And the song he writes about it is what? You reign. The Lord reigns. The Lord is in robe. The Lord is the one who reigns over all. He was reigning in the past and he will reign forever. This was not the occasion in which David stood up and and, and crowed about what he did. He didn't puff out his chest. He didn't pound on his chest and say, look at me. How many songs do we hear in our modern uh, modern repertoire of the singer standing up and declaring how wonderful they are, how great they are? Look at me. David is named king, and the most popular songwriter that day says, The Lord reigns. The Lord is enrobed. David's triumph is marked by David's humility. We have to understand that humility is an important attribute for God's followers. For those who follow after God, we have to understand the depth of the importance of humility. Now, even as I say that, I, I feel as though you come to church, preacher gets up, and the preacher starts beginning to talk about humility and pride, and you, and you kind of get somewhat dismissive of it. For many of us, it, it's, it's easy to come in church, to church and, and, and to hear, be humble, don't be prideful, 
and go, okay, that's really cool. Like, yeah, that's true. We should, we should all be humble and we should not be prideful. And so what you do is for about the next 20 minutes, you just kind of check out and go, that's the crux of the message. I'll, not be, I'll, not, I'll be humble. I won't be prideful. But you need to understand the depths. You need to understand the, um, uh, the foundational importance of the follower of Jesus Christ, of the one whose heart is after God, the need for humility to be the heartbeat of our life. Every relationship in your life is affected by your level of humility. How you approach those in need, how you approach those you love, how you approach those who have wronged you, how you approach people in the church, how you approach people outside the church. How you approach God. Humility plays a, a, a key role in how you view your victories and how you handle disappointments. David, a man after God's own heart, rep repeatedly declares the value of humility. In Psalms 18, he says, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Psalms 25, he says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Psalms 147, it says, The Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. In Psalms 149, he writes and says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. And the same admonishment towards humility is found all throughout the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says again in Luke, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James tells us in chapter 4 of his book, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And Peter writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. David doesn't puff out his chest. He doesn't declare his majesty. He doesn't declare his reign. He doesn't declare his triumph. He says, God reigns. And in that declaration, he sets an example, I think, for all believers. Now, earlier I said that there were two Psalms that, that are particularly tied to this period in David's life. And the second song that, 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 that is produced by, by his, his crowning that I think is probably even more informative for us as believers today is Psalms 139. As he stands at the pinnacle of his life achievement, he looks heavenward and he says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. 
You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Then he goes on and he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The psalm that, that his literal crowning achievement produced shows his heart's humility. David here in this passage passage shows this pathway to true humility for the hearts of those who pursue God. One of the things we have to understand is the key to right living is always right thinking. And in the life of the believer, that right thinking is produced by right theology. Right theology simply means a right view of God, and that is particularly important when we contemplate a a, a truth um, pertaining to biblical humility. And this is where I said it's easy to dismiss the topic of humility and pride when it comes up in church, and I think the reason why it's easy for us to dismiss it is because so often we misunderstand it. What is humility? Sit there for a second and think that. So we come into church and we read all these passages that say we should live in humility. We need to be humble. We need to, we need to live in humility. We need to be humble. We need to not be prideful. And, and my guess is, as I look out over the crowd, I bet we could come up with three or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten definitions of what humility really is. Right? When I tell you to be humble, how do you do that? This is why I said earlier, it's easy for us to dismiss this because I don't really think we grasp really what it means to be humble. And that's why when we look at Scripture, there is this beautiful expression of true biblical humility that I think we can take hold of and live in our lives. As I say, often humility is a difficult concept to grasp. One of the greatest teachings I ever came across on biblical humility, I think, provides a very simple definition. Biblical humility is having a right view of oneself, specifically in light of God. Biblical humility is having a right view of oneself, specifically in light of God. 
What the Bible calls us to humility, what the Bible calls us to is to be able to understand who we are before God. Who we are, who, who we are as a result of our relationship with God and who God is in relationship to us. It means measuring oneself in the knowledge of who God is and who we are before him. And you see, this is the key. This is the right understanding of this. this. This moderates everything. This regulates everything in our faith. It keeps us from puffing up in pride. But it also keeps us from being deflated in self-hatred. See, this is, the, this is the balance that we run into when it comes to humility. So many people are like, what, am I supposed to think, am I supposed to think less of myself? Am I supposed to, am I supposed to think I'm, I'm a lesser being or I'm a lesser person than other people to be humble before them? But see, when I understand my right relationship before God, I understand His majesty. I understand His greatness. I understand how He reigns, as David declares, even as He's being made king. But I also understand the relationship he has with me, the love he has for me, the place I have in his court, in his kingdom, in his family. So see, true biblical humility is this understanding, a deep understanding of our place before God. And this understanding of humility, I think, is revealed throughout David's writing. And even here in, in 139. See, it provides this pathway for us. The humility that David describes here in 139, what, what he described in the other passages we read, what he describes throughout all of the Proverbs, is a humility in light of the greatness and the graciousness of God. David did not beat his chest when he accomplished his life's dream. But he did declare God's greatness and God's graciousness towards him. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. How precious, are my, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they would be more than the sand. Do you see how every word here drips with the acknowledgement of the greatness of God, of the majesty of God, of the, uh, uh, of the godness of God? But throughout it, he's talking about how he's in David's life. He's leading David. He's speaking to David. He's showing David that his relationship with him is precious to him. This is a powerful declaration of how great God is, but it also realized that this greatness was graciously directed toward him. 
David's right view of God and himself before God led him to a place of humility. And it needs to lead us to that same place. As I sit back and I think about about the greatest threat to the Christian life, it is probably a misunderstanding of our relationship with God as it manifests in an inflated sense of our own strength, of our own intelligence, of our own power. And ultimately, that threat is pride. It's interesting to note that pride is one issue the Bible repeatedly tells us God hates. Proverbs 6 says there are three, seven things that God, the Lord hates, and the first one is howdy eyes. Proverbs 16 says everyone who is arrogant is an, ad, ad, an abomination to God. Jeremiah 50 says, Behold, I am against you, O proud one, says the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come, the time when I will punish you. And Christ says in Luke, What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And there's something I think we we often forget that's found in, in 1 John. 1 John talks about all that is in the world. And he essentially talks about the, the wellsprings of sin. And he says, and in that passage he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. For many of us Christians, I think it's easy for us to guard against the lust of the flesh. We see that as a very direct threat. Or maybe the lust of the eyes, we see that as a very direct threat. But I think we lose sight of the fact that in there is also the pride of life. Pride is something God hates and humility is something he calls us to. And so we need to turn our back on pride and come to a place of humility. There's this really interesting study in pride that we can discover in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. I don't know if you guys know this. If you read the book, uh, the book of First and Second Corinthians, but the Church of Corinth was really screwed up. They were really out there, and it's fascinating because as you walk through First Corinthians and Second Corinthians, it seems as though there's this theme that Paul hits on as he's trying to correct them. He's talking to them through both letters, and we discover at the root of much of their problem is pride and arrogance. 1 Corinthians 4.18, Paul writes and says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. 1 Corinthians 1 says, No human being should boast in the presence of God. 131 says, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3 says, so then let no one boast of men. 1 Corinthians 8 says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. The root of the sickness of the Corinthian church was insidious pride. 
Because they didn't seem to understand when spiritual pride was manifested. And Paul was trying to teach them that their spiritual pride was going to destroy them. So there is a spiritual pride challenge that each one of us has to face. Each one of us has to look at our lives and say, am I living in spiritual pride? Or do I truly understand the valuable lesson of humility? There's three different ways in which I look at this and I see this manifesting in the lives of believers. The first way is, is I really believe spiritual pride is manifested in us boasting in ourself and not in the Lord. Taking credit for who we are, for where we are in ourselves and not in the Lord. David immediately acknowledges God upon every victory. He's crowned king, he goes to God. He defeats Goliath, he turns to God and says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will count all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. We see Paul in his instruction to the arrogant Corinthians where he writes and says, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is this continual battle, I believe, and I see it all the time in our Christian walk, in our spiritual walk, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a lay person. When we see and accomplish, we take credit. Look at what I've built. Look at what I've created. Look at, look at the spiritual life I've made. I, I look, at, look at how I've lived this life. Look at what a good Christian I am. Look at how I've done so well. There is this continual battle in the heart of the believer to, to, to acknowledge that God is the one who's responsible for it all. We have this spiritual pride that says, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished. This is the spiritual pride that produces legalism. The spiritual pride that says, look at how I've done what's right, look at how I've, I do what's right, I don't do what's wrong. How is it that you can't do as good as I can do? Right? I've done this. I've accomplished this. Now, we pay, we pay lip service all the time to look at what God does and God's in this and that's this, but there is this pride in our hearts that says, I do what's right and I don't do what's wrong. We have this, uh, so often we in the believer, in, in the work of, we believe in the work of Christ. We acknowledge the work of Christ to save us, but we rely on our own goodness to sustain us. We believe he's our savior, but if I do what's right, if I do what's right, if I do what's right, if I don't do what's wrong, if I don't do what's wrong, that's what keeps my salvation. And we pat ourselves on the back in that. And the reality is Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Sustainer. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one that carries us in every moment. And any victory you have in, Christ, in the spirit realm 
is a victory won by God and not by us. And so as we stand before him in right relationship with him, with a right view of ourselves, we say, to God be the glory for all he has done. He is the one who has sustained me. He is the one who is moving in my life. He is the one who has overcome. There is no reason for us to stand before somebody else in our own spiritual pride and say, look how good I am compared to you. That is a pride that will undo our faith. God does it all. Second place I see the Christian life so often allowing pride to take control is that spiritual pride is relying on self and not on God. Now, in the one safe place, we don't acknowledge God as the person, as the one, as the means. We don't acknowledge Christ as the sustainer. We don't acknowledge the Holy Spirit as the one that's given us all that we have. But on the other hand, what we do is we have the spiritual pride in which we, we don't rely on God, we rely on self. It is this feeling of sufficiency in our own strength and not in God's. It is what I believe is an arrogance of not yielding. Hear that again. We have this arrogance as Christians to not yield, to not lay it down, to not trust. Proverbs tells us so beautifully, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Paul confronts this very thing with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. How often in our pride do we think we are capable and in charge? That we can do this. You know, I'll tell you where, where I think this has manifested itself most clearly. And I, and I think the vast majority of us as Christians can, can identify with this. I think where this manifests itself most clearly is in our prayer life. How often do you actually go to God in prayer? The truth of the matter is, most Christians only turn to God in prayer when it is clearly beyond our control, because we pridefully believe we can handle everything else. We, we, we don't get up every morning and pray to God and ask God to be there to help us through our day, to give us wisdom, to give us knowledge, to direct us, to, to, to give us the right words to say. When we step into situations, we're not completely relying on God for his wisdom and his understanding. We've got it ourselves. But when we get the diagnosis that we have cancer, then we drop to our knees. Because we can't do anything else. The truth is, the believer who has true humility, who has a right view of their place before God, is constantly coming to him and saying, you are great. You are in control. You are majestic. And, and I have nothing in my own understanding. I have nothing in my own wisdom that's going to move me forward. I trust you. 
Do you live in humility before the Lord, acknowledging he has the answer, and it's not in my strength, it's not in my ability? Remember this, this popular Christian song when I was a kid that my mom used to listen to, and it actually irritated me. But it stuck with me to this day. It said this, I go to the rock for my salvation. I go to the stone that the builders rejected. I run to the mountain, and the mountain stands with me. When the earth all around me is sinking sand, on Christ the solid rock I stand. When I need a shelter, when I need a friend, I go to the rock. How many of you remember that song? Some of you are old. The humble heart of God chasers run to God in all circumstances. It is our own pride that separates us from him at the most difficult times of our lives. But humility leads you back to him. Finally, I see that spiritual pride manifested in the heart of the believer so often is the disinclination to admit that we are mere earthen vessels. It is a disinclination to admit that before God, who are we? I always loved that about the posture of the heart of David when he would stand, when he would write and he would say, who is man that you are mindful of him? As intimate as David's relationship was with God, he understood who he was before God. And as the first incident of spiritual pride leads us to, 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 spirit, to spiritual legalism, this pride leads us to spiritual liberalism. Because what it does is it, 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 it leads us away from the truth of the transcendency of God in light of who we are. What it does is it causes us not to yield to the transcendent of power. What it does is it calls us to stand up and say, I know things. I understand. I mean, I know you're God, but how could you... How often do we, in our view of God, look to God and try and explain to God how what he's doing isn't right? How often do we open up the word of God and we see the things, the declarations of God who tells us who he is and how he operates, and we say, no, no, no. You ever heard that? No God I serve would ever. That's probably true. It's probably true. The God you serve wouldn't do that, but the God of the universe would. Because most people are, are stand before God arrogantly and say, God, why would you do this? One of my all-time favorite exchanges in all of Scripture is the interaction between Job and David, or between Job and God, as he's in the midst of his suffering. Now, Job is this guy that God says, consider my servant Job in whom I find no fault. And throughout all that, all that Job went through, all the, time, all the struggles he went through, all that he lost, all that he suffered, it says he never once, he, he never once cursed God. His, his friends would say, just curse God and die. 
And he kept acknowledging who God was. And he says, well, no, he's God, he's God. But at one point, he gets this interaction with God, and he says, God, I don't understand. Now, understand this. This is a guy who lost his children, lost his wife, lost his, lost his wealth. He was, sit- he was left sitting with oozing, pussing uh, wounds that he was scraping with a clay pot with ashes on him. And he finally gets to this point where he looks up at God and goes, God, I don't understand. And all he says, all he asks of God in this moment was this. He said, I could understand if all these bad things happened to me if I had been doing bad. But I haven't been doing bad. I've been doing good. I've been faithful to you. And And there's this wonderful exchange that takes place. And it opens with God looking at, at, um, at Job and says, gird yourself like a man, because I'm coming at you. How, how, many, how, many guys, how many guys are excited about that moment in your life when God says that to you? And what God does is he proceeds to talk to Job and he says, where were you when I hung the stars? Where were you when I created it all? Where were you? He says, who are you as man to question me? And, and, and in that, Job is just basically saying, I can understand the, the, the equation. And God's like saying, who are you to establish an equation? I am God. I reign. I rule. It is your responsibility to know me and to acknowledge me and to bend your knee before me and believe that I am reigning in righteousness. I am reigning in truth. I am reigning in love and humility. He calls us to that posture before him. This is why Paul says in in Romans 9, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? All throughout Scripture, it it, it calls us to stand before God and say, God, you are God. And the arrogance of liberalism that shakes its fist at God and says, you don't know, is one that the Bible assures us God will answer. A right view of the greatness and graciousness of God breeds humility and kills the spiritual pride that is an abomination to God. We see pride diminishes the glory of God. It denies his rightful place in our lives as God, the preeminent source of all things. David has a right view of God's greatness, and he humbled himself before God's throne, even as he was placed on Israel's throne. May our view of the greatness of God humble us before his throne. And as we contemplate that, as we embrace that reality, there's this great finishing touch to David's song of praise that I want to be our prayer this morning. Because he calls out to God and says, keep me accountable. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
try me and, and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. The way of everlasting is a humility before God. A humility that acknowledges God, that trusts God, and that yields to God. David was facing the temptation of his victory. And he didn't want to ever stray from the truth of God's greatness and God's graciousness. God, search me. Know my heart. Purify me. Know my thoughts. If I ever begin to stray, lead me back to your greatness. Remind me of your graciousness. And may pride never take root in our lives.